So we're going to do something a little bit different today. Um, we are um, we finished First Corinthians last week. Those of you who weren't here, so after I don't know fifty some odd messages in in uh, Corinthians, we are uh, done with First Corinthians. And Lord willing, I'm hoping to start Second Corinthians in August after we break for Sundays in July. And for the next two weeks, what I would like to do is. Um, uh, use this as an equipping time and talk about biblical interpretation, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a Greek word just meaning uh, hermeneo is to interpret. And so we're just looking at this idea of how do we interpret the Bible? Sometimes we hear sermons and we say, well, I don't know. Does the Bible really teach that? I know that um, I heard a message one time uh, where um, about Acts 28 and Paul's visit to Malta where, remember, he was gathering wood after the shipwreck, and they're building a fire, and a snake comes out and bites his hand. And, and uh, the, the, the outline for that sermon was, uh, don't let Satan bite your hand of service. And secondly, don't let Satan bite your hand of prayer. Amen, right? And, and then the third one, don't let Satan bite your hand of praise, you know, and, and you look at that and you think, wow, I didn't, I never saw that in that text before. And there's a good reason you never saw that in that text before. Uh, and so sometimes we come to the word of God and people are uh, giving us messages from it or lessons from it. And you're wondering, is that really the right interpretation? And so this morning, I'd like to look at 12 different um, steps or 12 different tools that we can use in interpretation. And uh, I'm drawing upon this from a book which is uh, called Expository Studying by Joel James. In fact, this lecture is from chapter 4, and much of what I'm saying is directly from that chapter. So if I don't finish today and you're not here next week, or uh, if you want to study this further, this is a free download. You can get this book at gracefellowship.co.za. It's in South Africa. It's uh, Z-A. So... Um, but you can you can go into the resources tab and you can download this book. It's called Expository Studying, and I think it's it's important for us because uh, as we think about um, preparing for to, to teach the Bible, you know, uh, everyone has a responsibility to teach the Bible. Whether you are a father at home uh, or teaching a Bible study in a group, or you are like in Titus two, an older woman who's who's responsible to teach younger women what is good. We need to know the Bible and have certain ideas about how to interpret the Bible. And uh, we need to be diligent to present ourselves approved by God and those who are workmen and not needing to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And so as we think about these principles, um, we are going to uh, really uh, preface this by, by saying that uh, we really need to commit ourselves to prayer because God needs to guide this whole process. In Psalm 119, verse 18, it says, Open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your law. And so uh, if, you, if you have not uh, repented of your sins, turned and trusted in Christ as Lord, it will be, um, there are principles you can understand, but you will never be able to apply the word like somebody who has been transformed by the truths of this book. And yet, um, those of us who are believers, we read this book, even applying it to our own lives, we should understand how to interpret it. And so, 
the first principle of biblical interpretation is this, the clarity of Scripture. The clarity of Scripture. Some, some uh, books call this the, uh, the perspicuity of Scripture. Uh, but clarity is actually clearer than perspicuity. So, and perspicuity means clarity. And so the idea here is that the Bible can be understood because God meant it to be understood. Um, in Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19, the Lord said, I am the Lord, there is none else. I have, spoke, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring the things that are upright. And even in Deuteronomy 29, 29, a verse which is often quoted as uh, God's having secret ways, it says the uh, secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but it says the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology says the clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. This doesn't mean that the Bible is equally easy to understand, that every passage is equally easy to interpret. Um, in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, it says, uh, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as, we also, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. Um, what's interesting about that, that reference for that verse, 2 Peter three fifteen and 16, there's a lot there, but one is that it refers to Paul's writings as scripture, says as are the rest of scriptures. It talks about that some are difficult to understand and some people distort them, and we're aware of that. But what's fascinating is that it's intended to be understood. It's not like somebody has this secret message that they're going to show you by counting a certain number of words and putting a number to it or the letters or, you know, these sort of things. The Bible was written as a book that was intended to be understood, and so there is a clarity to it the clarity of Scripture. I'm going to move on to the second principle, and that is the accommodation of revelation. The accommodation of revelation. It's important to know that the Scripture was intended to be understood, but it's also important to realize that there are certain accommodations in the Word of God given to us so that we can understand them. Yesterday, I attended a wedding here at Grace Church, and um, it was all in Spanish, and yet they had an interpretation, they had an interpreter, and they had, they had uh, in fact, uh, uh, the, the main message uh, was, was the, the preacher gave one line in Spanish and one line in English because there were people there from different uh, language groups, and so they made accommodations for us. And uh, when we talk about accommodation, it means to adjust something you normally do in order to fit a specific situation. God chose to reveal himself in terms that we can comprehend. For example, Scripture was revealed in well-known languages, Hebrew, Greek, and some of it was in Aramaic, but those were well-known languages at the time that it was revealed. It also means, this also means, the accommodation of revelation also means that when God speaks of divine or infinite concepts, he does so in a way that we can relate to them. 
For example, Second uh, Chronicles 16.9 says, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. Um, and, and yet we know uh, from John like 4.24 that God is spirit. So some people read passages where we have these anthropomorphisms like the eyes of the Lord or the hand of the Lord. Say, so, well, does he have eyes? Does he have hands? Or is he a spirit? And then does the Bible contradict itself? What is the answer to that question? The Bible doesn't contradict itself, yet God uses language that we understand to teach us truths about himself. God talks about his eyes, um, knowing that eyesight is one of the most perceptive uh, of, of human senses that we have, but he uses it to describe his infinite perception ability. His, he can perceive everything. Um, and, he, and he shares that with us in, in language that we can understand. And so he uses a lesser uh, thing like eyes or human eyesight to help us understand an infinitely greater thing like his all-powerful ability to perceive. So we need to be aware that even though the Bible is intended to be understood, God uses uh, language that accommodates to language that we use. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. I will take some time for some questions when we get through a few of these, so you might want to write these down if you have them. Um, we have the harmony of Scripture, the harmony of Scripture. The Bible was written uh, by God. He is the author, the sole author, and yet he, his spirit inspired. He used, he used over 30 human authors to write it down. Uh, and that was over a period of 1,500 years. And some of them were, they were from different regions, geographical regions, different. Uh, some of them were poor, some of them were wealthy. We had kings, we have a shepherd king. When we think about those who wrote this, different languages, different times. I mean, just imagine, just imagine that this room were a time machine and we were all in it and we could punch into some board somewhere any year we wanted to and we could go there and we traveled back uh, 400 years and we showed up in Paris and we saw an artist on the street of Paris and we said to him, hey, uh, we're going to get a picture. He said, sure, well, you know, all over. And so he's like, you know, he's, and he's painting this, uh, this uh, portrait and we take it and we go put it in a cave somewhere and then we go back 600 years and then 800 and 1500 years and, and 100 years and we travel throughout time and we get 66 different portraits, all right? And then, then we come back to today, and then we all get in our cars, and we go on a field trip, we go to this cave, and we, get, we find them all. They're all there stashed away. And then let's just say that we put them all on one big wall, and somehow they form one big picture. It's like a puzzle. You'd say, how is that possible? Well, it would be impossible for humans to do that without really uh, God inspiring them. And we have 66 books of the Bible. It's one story from the beginning to the end. It begins with creation and a perfect relationship with God. The halfway point of the Bible is Genesis 3, because the first half of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, is a perfect relationship with God and man. And when man sins and there's the fall of man in Genesis 3, the rest of the Bible describes how to regain that perfect relationship with God, who he is and, and his grace and his desire to uh, redeem a lost and sinful mankind. And then it ends with 
the story of what the future looks like for that redeemed man. So it is an amazing book, would be completely impossible. And it, it just shows us that Scripture is going to harmonize with Scripture. That's a foundational doctrine that we use, the harmony of Scripture. This is a, this is a principle that we use, but it can be abused as well. Sometimes they... Um, they take one text and they give an interpretation of it and they try and hammer other texts into it, which is why it's important when you're using the harmony of Scripture to really use all these other tools of interpretation and to try and get uh, all of them out and say, what, do they, what are they all saying collectively and how do they harmonize with one another? I remember that um, uh, when I was a... Um, uh, a teenager, I was doing some evangelism, and uh, somebody that we were evangelizing to said to me, uh, well, the Bible contradicts itself. And I said, um, well, I don't believe it does. And he says, and he took me to chapter and verse. He says, right here, uh, it says, uh, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But here, uh, turn your cheek. And those are two totally different instructions. And I said, he says, it's a contradiction. How could the Bible teach both things? And looking at it, the way he showed it to me was like, wow, I, I don't know. And so, so I, I said, you know, I don't know the answer to that. But if you meet me back here tonight, I will study it this afternoon, and I'll come back and bring you the answer. And so we were, we were, we were young, and we were, oh, that's we're studying all afternoon. And then we came back. He was there that evening. Uh, this was a mission trip that I was on in London. We, were, we went to Covenant Gardens and met him there. And so we opened the Bible and we said, you see, you know what is happening here is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount actually quoted both of those things. You have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, Matthew 5 through 7 in that Sermon on the Mount. He says, but I say to you, uh, if, you're, if your brother hits you on your cheek, turn your cheek. And so the, the, it's the, uh, in the Old Testament, a law was given to the leaders of Israel for justice and they were to practice justice, an example of an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But people had taken it and applied it personally to their own lives and weren't forgiving one another and were always demanding justice. And Jesus was calling believers to a higher personal level of interaction. And even unbelievers, that if somebody treats you poorly, you, you, you suffer injustice. And it's this, you're going the extra mile and so it would be wrong to take uh, an instruction for the leaders of a government on how they should judge the people and apply that to you individually every time you're wronged. And so it's a higher level of personal interaction with others. You see how those harmonize? They don't contradict. And we find that throughout Scripture. Uh, and, and it just takes a little bit more effort to look at the context and apply different uh, um, methods of uh, different principles of interpretation. So that's the harmony of Scripture. Let both texts speak. But since the, the Bible does have one divine author, we, we come to it expecting theological agreement, and indeed we find that, and that's a comfort. Then we also have the normal interpretation, normal interpretation. Um, usually, one big problem is that people read the Bible abnormally. When they open the Bible, they forget everything they've ever learned about reading. Uh, they ignore the context. They look for the secret personal meetings. Normal interpretation, on the other hand, means that you read the Bible 
in the following reading practice, and you follow reading practices you would consider important for any important document, whether it was written by humans or divine. Um, if uh, if we were uh, had problems here because some of the the lights were were not working, and I wrote a, a note to the facilities here at the church, and I just said, "Hey, we're struggling and steadfast on Sunday mornings because." We don't have enough light. Can you guys please figure out what's going on and fix the problem? And the maintenance guy gets the note, and he says, Oh, Pastor Brian is, is uh, experiencing spiritual warfare in Steadfast because there's a darkness, and we need to gather around and be praying for him. And, uh, and, and, and I think he's not looking at the note in a normal way that you would read a note. He's spiritualizing, perhaps because it's signed by Pastor Brian or whatever. But, but the idea here is that, is that well, sometimes when people come to Scripture, they just throw everything out of the window. Um, in, 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 uh, uh, there's a, there's a, in church history, there's an example of a message about the Good Samaritan where... They just took an allegorical approach and threw out uh, everything and put a symbolic meaning to the whole story. And so um, you had um, uh, the, um, it was the, the, the Good Samaritan comes along. Of course, the, the thieves were safe, you know, and then the Good Samaritan cries and the oil that uh, the injured person is, is, you know, is the Holy Spirit and, and the place and the donkey is the word of God. I mean, this is a real uh, description of how people were trying to interpret this. And they actually are just not going for a normal interpretation. Um, now, sometimes this is called the literal method of interpretation. The normal method of interpretation is sometimes called the literal, and, and it's fine to use that. Sometimes those who do not believe in a literal or normal method of interpretation criticize those who do by saying, well, how can Christians say it's literal? The Bible is not literal. I mean, when Jesus said, I am the door, did he literally turn himself into a piece of wood and have hinges on one side and a handle on the other? John chapter 10, 9, when he says, I am the door. I mean, who, who interprets the Bible literally? Well, you should know that the literal method of interpretation accepts figures of speech. It accepts metaphors, similes, the regular way, it's the normal way of reading the scripture. It doesn't mean that everything has to be written with a wooden, literal interpretation. All right, so I've gone through four of these, and we've got some more, and we're going to spend some more time on some other ones and turn to some passages, and I've got some assignments for you. But any questions so far? Verse four. Yes. Oh, the guy in London came to faith in Christ, and uh, it, was, it was really a sweet thing. It was one of my greatest um, moments of just praise as, as a young, like I fell in love with sharing Christ. I also learned a valuable lesson, and that is I lost contact with him. And I don't know if he ever got tied into a good church. And I feel for that. I was not doing for follow-up, um, being zealous with evangelism, but who's going to disciple him? Who's going to shepherd him after that? So thank you. Thanks for, yes, yes. Right. So how, what do you say to people say, how can you interpret the Bible using the Bible? Well, I think uh, one of the things you need to be aware of, there are two methods of apologetics. There's evidentialism and there's presuppositionalism. And in evidentialism, 
uh, people typically try to use things outside the Bible to prove the Bible. Now, there's a place for using all of those evidential facts, and yet I'm not convinced that they actually will, will actually, um, uh, they might, you might win the argument, the person might have to admit that there's a greater higher being, but do they know Christ? And then there's somebody who just admits that there's a greater higher being, but they're still going to hell. Uh, presuppositional uh, apologetics says that everybody has a presupposition. Your presupposition is that the Bible is not God's word. You're coming to this trying to be from a secular, and yet there is no truly neutral standpoint. You're, you don't, I'm coming to you saying that the Bible is the word of God, and I want to put the burden of proof on you. And I want you to interact with the Bible and show me that it's not the word of God. The Bible claims to be the word of God, and therefore I'm beginning with that. And they say, well, that's circular reasoning. All reasoning begins with certain, certain uh, presuppositions. And in fact, the fact that you're using reason is borrowed from a biblical worldview um, because uh, if there is no God and there is no rule or law or authority, then who is to say that there's reason? And who is to say that I'm being unreasonable? It's all circular reasoning. It all goes back to whether you begin with there is a God or there isn't a God. So I have no problem. In fact, I would encourage you when you don't know the answer to something. First of all, when anybody asks you a theological question or a debate, open it up to the Scripture and read it with them and try to read it in context. Most of the time, that clears it up right then and there. Um, don't get into a theological discussion with somebody about a particular verse without having the Bible open and that verse there. It's, you're just dangerous. You're just getting, you're easily just shifting in arguments and it, it gets volatile. And yet, what changed? The Word of God. So I, I just, I, you know, if, if, you, if you look at, um, uh, in, is it Acts 18 where um, Paul is at the Areopagus and he's arguing with the men of Athens, he begins by saying there is a God, and he, he begins by, you know, making a reference to their idol to a, um, an unknown God, but let me tell you about this God, and he just starts telling them about God, and I think that as, as we witness, we should just be telling people what the Bible teaches us about God, and if they say, well, I don't believe the Bible, well, have you read it? Have you, you know, you know how can you say you don't believe it? You haven't even read the Gospel of John. You know, um, so I, I really think that what's going to change their heart, it's the word. It's not me. It's not my arguments, my, not my eloquence, it's not my arguing ability. It's not my persuasion. It's going to be the word of God. So the more we can get people into the word of God, the better. Is that helpful? Okay, so uh, let's move on to a fifth one. One meaning of a text. One meaning of a text. Um, so... One of the nightmares that I experience uh, is going to a Bible study and walking into the room and seeing a circle of chairs uh, and, and uh, sitting down in that circle and having the person who's the Bible study leader say, great, welcome to our study tonight. And he reads the verse, he turns to the person next to him and says, well, what does that mean to you? Right? And then it goes to the next person says, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? What does this mean? 
I am miserable in that situation. I am, I'm like the worst person to have. If you're going to have one of those things, don't invite me because I, I can't keep my mouth shut. Because when it comes to me, it says what it means to me. I'm saying, well, it probably means that you didn't, you didn't study the past. That's why you're asking everybody else. I mean, I mean I, it, it really doesn't matter what it means to me. Who am I? What it matters is what it means, Right? And if we're going to go around the room and everybody's going to say, oh, well, this means this to me. Well, this means this to me. Or this means this to me. And we get to the guy who's supposed to be teaching. And he says, wasn't that a wonderful study? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm cringing. I'm cringing. I've told the story before that when I was a youth pastor, uh, I, I drove one of the kids home from the youth group. And he said, would you like to meet my parents? I said, I'd love to meet your parents. He skateboarded to church. He, he, I never met his parents. And so uh, I met them, and they said, hey, uh, we are so glad that our son Andy is in your youth group, um, but we want you to know that we want Andy to experience all religions and all faiths, and we want him to pick and choose what he likes from every religion and put it together and make his own religion. And I said, I said wow. I said, uh, I don't know how that would work. Because the Bible says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me in, in John 14. So I don't understand if Jesus is, says he's the only way, then either Christianity is the only true faith or it's wrong and all faiths can't be true. And they looked at me and they said, well, you know, that might be true for you, but it's not necessarily true for us. And I had just watched some um, videotapes on uh, uh, R.C. Sproul. Uh, so I, I put R.C. Sproul face, and I'm like, oh, well, I... I don't even understand. He's like Columbo. I don't understand that, you know? Um, yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I, and I, and I, I said, uh, I said, uh, it sounds to me like what you're saying. I said this to this couple. I said, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that I could believe one plus one equals two, and you could believe one plus two equals two, and somehow we could both be right. And they looked at each other, and they looked at me, and they said, that's exactly what we believe. We've never heard it explained so well. <laughs> this is the world that we live in. And yet... Because we believe in absolute truth, we believe that there is only one, interp- one true interpretation for every text. Now, I may be wrong on a certain interpretation. If you and I disagree, I may be wrong, or you may be wrong, or we both might be wrong, and there might be a third interpretation that clears it up. But if we disagree about the interpretation, we're not both right. What people are talking about oftentimes when they talk about meaning is not meaning but application. And so a sixth principle is first interpretation, then application. First interpretation, then application. When Christians say what this verse means to me is dot, 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 what they're often saying is, how this verse applies to me or how this verse affects my life. But it is very dangerous to begin with an application before 
you've explained the interpretation of the passage. Let's give let's 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 try and think of an example here, okay? Um, Exodus twenty verse fifteen, thou shalt not steal. Okay. What does that mean? Oh yeah, okay. So when I ask you what it means and we're looking for interpretation, rephrase it in a way that doesn't use the exact same phrase, right? Because that's kind of a basic rule of definition, right? Um, so somebody comes to you and they say, what does this verse mean, thou shalt not steal? Yes. Okay, don't take what doesn't belong to you. Fine, that's great. Sometimes people will answer this and they'll say, um, uh, you know, well, what this means is, you know, if you're in a store and there's a candy bar and you're a little kid and you're tempted and you take it and put it in your pocket, that's wrong. Now, that's an application of it, but it's not the definition, not the meaning of it because there are, there could be hundreds, thousands of applications. And uh, if you go to the Department of Motor Vehicles and you're standing in line and you get up to the front counter and you, you happen to lean over a little bit and you've been waiting for three hours, but you see that the person there actually has solitaire up on their screen and they're playing solitaire and that's why it's taking so long for them to... This is hypothetical, by the way. And so uh, uh, if you work at the MB, I'm, 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 anyway, so it could be anywhere, right? But, but somebody who wastes time at work when they're supposed to be working and they're being paid for working, is actually stealing. They're stealing from their bosses. They could be stealing from you. Time, But that fits the definition that Luke gave us, is that they're taking something that doesn't belong to them. So that's the meaning. But the application, when we preach, um, people say, well, I want applicational preaching. And I think what they mean by that oftentimes is they want a list at the very end of the sermon or at some point say, let me give you five ways that you can apply this. And that can be helpful, and there's a place for that. But what's better is implicational preaching, where the, the meaning of the text is so good that you start to apply it to areas of your life. And sometimes when you give five ways you can apply it, you're limiting the application because people are only thinking about those five ways. It's better to make the text so explicitly clear that if you have 2,000 people there, they could have 2,000 different applications. One meaning, many applications. Meaning first, then we look for applications, and that is a principle which we should guard. Um, Let's just do a little assignment here. Um, uh, Turn your Bibles to Romans 12, 1 and 2. And if you have a piece of paper... um, you can, you can write this out, but um, if, you, if not, just try to put it in your own Write 12 verses 1 and 2 in your own words. But before each clause, I want you to write the words, Paul said, okay? Paul said, but I want you to, and so like, for example, uh, let's, let's just start this uh, t- together. So what's the first clause in Romans 12? I beseech you, right? Okay, so uh, uh, we're going to reword that. So Paul said, I'm urging you. Okay, so we're changing the words a little bit. We're summarizing, but 
But what is, he, what is Paul saying? Okay? Yeah, just a minute. I'm going to ask you probably about uh, verse 2 to, to summarize that first, that first part of that sentence in, in verse 2. Okay. Who, I know that was probably quick. That, I mean, this takes time, and, but I'm just, I just wanted you to think about that a little bit. But Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world. Who could summarize that for me in different words? What is Paul saying there? Yes. In the, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, okay? Who, who shouldn't let the world squeeze them into their mold? Who, are the, who is the reader? Sorry? Who? Which brothers? Which believers? Roman believers. So, I mean, we're really trying to get, you know, Paul said that Roman believers should not what? Okay, love the world, yeah? But really, it's, um, they should not embrace the pattern and thinking. And who's the world? Who's the world in this passage? Unbelievers? Okay. So um, Paul said that Roman believers should not embrace the pattern of thinking and living evidenced by unbelievers around them. So now you're taking the passage... You're interpreting it. You're looking for that. What, what would it have meant to the original readers? And go for application. It would be wrong for you to say, um, do not be conformed to this world. What Paul is saying there is you should never watch TV. Right? And you can see how somebody with maybe who, you know, and, and listen, I mean, I'm not here to, to promote TV. Uh, there's lots on TV that you shouldn't watch. This isn't an all-blanket statement that TV is evil, right? And, and so that might be an application for you with certain things, but it is not the meaning. And so trying to go back, and I think it's just a, a helpful exercise to put those words, Paul said, or the writer of Hebrews said, or Matthew said, and who was he saying it to, and what was he trying to communicate, and putting it in different words, it's a good practice of interpretation, then looking for application. This is a big one, context, context. If you ignore context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. I'll show you the worst example of, you know, well, I'll give you a few examples and then I'll show you the worst. But like I tell my students, if, you want, if, if context didn't matter, you'd be set. Because I could say, where's your homework? And you say, well, God told me not to do my homework. Really? Yeah, I opened my Bible, and I pointed to Philippians 2, and it says, do nothing. <laughs> so I did nothing. I believe that's what God wanted me to do. Oh, oh, yeah. It doesn't say, you know. Or you, you know, somebody's really nervous about and saying, why are you nervous? Well, God told me I should be nervous. Really? Yeah, Philippians 4. What's it say? Be anxious. Be anxious. Well, Philippians 4 says, be anxious for nothing. And Philippians uh, uh, 2 says, Philippians 2, 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
So when we think about the context, context really matters. This is the worst example of context I've ever seen. This was, let's see, I can't, I can't make it bigger. But this is a promise calendar. And this is March 10th on the promise calendar. It takes promises from the Bible, and it puts it out there for you to just be encouraged with that day. And it says, Luke 4, 7, So if you worship me, capital M, if you worship me, it will all be yours. This happens when unbelievers promise calendars. Who said this? Satan. This was part of the temptation of Jesus. I mean, it, wow. Do not be conformed to this world means don't get a promise calendar, apparently. No, it, that, 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 that may be an application. That's not what it means. But um, let's, let's take a look at this from Scripture. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter... 10. Sorry, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, right before Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 1. All right. Okay, let's read verse 10. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. I'll read it. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Who's he speaking to? Sodom and Gomorrah. How can that be? I mean, let's take a look at verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Those kings reigned 1,400 years after Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. It's kind of late for a prophet to be prophesying to Sodom and Gomorrah when they were annihilated 1,400 years earlier, right? In fact, um, in verse 3, it says, um, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Israel tells us this is, I mean, verse 3 tells us this message is for Israel. So why does he use the word Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 10? Take nine. And the Lord of hosts had left. We would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of God, you people of Gomorrah. You see the similes, those like statements in verse 9? He's speaking to Israel, but he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah to emphasize that they were not listening. So context really matters. Uh, let's, let's go to another passage. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. You know this one? When I was uh, teaching at African Bible College, um, four-year Bible college, and the first semester in chapels, every chapel they would have a freshman stand up and give his testimony or her testimony and then share their favorite Bible verse. And I can't tell you how many times I heard somebody stand up and say, and I want to share my favorite Bible verse with you all, and I wish it upon you. And they would say, uh, Jeremiah 29 says, for thus says the Lord, when, uh, sorry, Verse 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And then I wish that upon you. And I'm like, no, no, please don't wish that upon me. 
I'm cringing. I'm dying. I wanted to get up there and say, I'd like to read my favorite verse. My favorite verse is Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Let's read it. Let's read it. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. You see, when you say, I wish this upon you, I mean, this verse is written to those who would be ripped from their homeland, taken into captive into Babylon and be in captivity for 70 years. And then God has this plan to prosper them. After 70 years. So this person said, I have to prosper you. Because you know what? The truth is, uh, God does have plans for your life. But if you're in rebellion against him, those are not plans to bless you. You do not have a hope. Your hope is only found in Christ. So how do we, how do we, how do we get out of this, this dangerous practice of ripping verses out of context? I think going back and, 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 and doing the proper interpretation, using these methods that we've looked at already, and, 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 and trying to say, okay, Jeremiah said to the captives, to those who would be held captive in Babylon, that after 70 years, verse 11, that um, uh, God had a future plan for them and has declared it to them, has told them, and that eventually they would survive or their descendants would survive and it would be a plan for uh, not for evil and not for danger and not for being disrupted, but for good and one where his promises to the line of Judah, his promises to Abraham from Genesis chapter 11, his, his promise to Adam and Eve about the seed, uh, those promises would all be fulfilled and they would be fulfilled in the future and they could have hope. And then we principles from that. God is a God of his word. God is a God who fulfills his word. God is a God who is a God of hope. And we could apply that to ourselves by saying, because he is always faithful to his word, and because he was faithful to his word about the captivity and re- delivering them after 70 years, we can also take and trust God because he's going to be faithful that Christ is coming again. And we can be faithful that if we repent of our sins and trust in him, that we will have eternal life. And we can take many of those principles and apply it, but we have to get the the actual truth of what the passage is teaching first. And we do that within the context. Context is king. And oftentimes people forget about the context of a passage. Okay, any questions? Because this this is a biggie, and I want to just pause here. See if we have any questions. Yes. So exegesis is bringing the truth out of Scripture. Eisegesis is putting truth into Scripture, putting the meaning into Scripture. And so we want to look at this exegetically, where we're trying to bring what the text says, what it means by what it says, and then the application is going to be what we should do about it. So that's the process that we're trying to go through here. 
And um, these are all different tools that the interpreter has in his tool bag. And sometimes he'll focus on certain parts of a verse, and, and, uh, and, and, uh, but, but these apply to all of Scripture. So you might do a message you're and might do, you know, six different word studies to try and get to the meaning of the word. But you wouldn't do a word study on every, um, uh, on every actual word. Um, so I think, I think um, yeah, uh, when we talk about exegesis, we're talking about bringing the truth out. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to interpret it properly so that we can apply it properly, so that we can share it properly with others. Uh, I think, let's do one more, and then, then we'll go ahead and, and, and break, and we'll come back uh, next. And that's progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. We talked about the fact that over 30 different human writers and uh, over 1,500 years of revelation and progressive revelation means that um, naturally God's revelation became more detailed as time went along. God didn't choose to reveal himself all at once to mankind. He revealed himself to a certain amount. But as time went on, he started revealing more. So that today we actually have more knowledge about God and who he is than they did earlier on. They have a greater, a deeper understanding. Um, it didn't progress from false to true. It's always been true. But it progressed from partial revelation to a complete revelation. And now we have a complete revelation. The letter to Hebrews says, complete revelation focuses on our Savior. It says, God, after he spoke to us long ago, to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. And we know more today than Moses knew, than Solomon knew, than David knew in the Old Testament. They anticipated God's message, but we've heard it. We've heard it. They believed the future Messiah or deliverer. When, when Abraham uh, was told that his seed would be a blessing to all nations, he believed that, but he didn't understand it would come in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so uh, as rewarding as a complete knowledge is for us today, it also holds a thing for us that we can go back and um, we can read things into the Old Testament that are not there. For example, in Genesis 12, 3, God said, through Abraham, he would bless all the families of heaven and earth. Um, and so there was no, there was no detailed uh, explanation of that. But in Galatians 3, God revealed that that blessing was ultimately in salvation through Jesus Christ. But it would be wrong for us to go back and say, you see, in Genesis 12, Abraham knew about Jesus. He didn't know specifically like we know about him from Galatians 3. So we have this uh, that where we get more and more knowledge throughout. And it's important to understand that, um, when, especially when we come to other uh, methods of interpretation, like looking at the history behind a passage. All right, so I think that's where we're going to end for today. We have a few minutes left. I, um, I know this is kind of a little bit of a lecture format, but yes, question.
So uh, are you talking about the canonicity of Scripture? So um, the canonicity of Scripture uh, can be summarized by these two statements. We believe that the 39 books of the Old Testament are complete because Jesus acknowledged them when he was on this earth. Jesus stood up in the temple and read from the scroll of Isaiah. And when he, in the temple at that time, they had already set the canon, and Jesus recognized Scripture as what was recognized at that time of the canonizing process of saying, you know, at some point what happens is books get out there and people say, well, is, is this Scripture or is this a fake? And, no, and then the, the, the leaders of the faith get together and say, oh, no, this is the canon. This is the measure. This is complete. And so when, what Jesus used in his lifetime was, you know, from Genesis to Malachi, and Malachi was written 400 years before Christ was born. So that was recognized as the complete Old Testament canon. That's what Jesus used. He didn't use apocryphal books like we find in the Roman Catholic faith. But uh, the New Testament... We believe that the 27 books of the New Testament are in the canon because Jesus authorized his apostles to write those words. And so everything we believe about what's in the Bible comes down to Jesus, what Jesus recognized or you know, used and what he um, authorized. And every book we have in the New Testament can be tied to one who he authorized. And so that's just a summary statement putting your surety in those 66 books that those are the, the, that's the complete revelation of the word of God. So much so that the last book, the book of Revelation says anybody who adds to these or takes away from them, it's dangerous to, to add to scripture and to say that we need more revelation today or somehow the canon is not complete. The canon is complete. Yes, Daniel. Yeah. So how are we confident that Hebrews is in the canon, though we didn't, though the, the uh, author didn't write? Well, next week I'll bring you that answer. Um, uh, so it, it's evident from the book of Hebrews that the author did have some apostolic relationships. And uh, I can try and point that out for you. But we don't believe it was Paul, but whoever it was, knew Jews, was a believer, and was close to Paul. And so, um, and I think that you can also go back and say, you know, who was it that, that wrote it? And there are different favorites. You know, I'm rooting for Barnabas. But uh, anyways, um, we wouldn't be dogmatic about who, but we could be sure uh, of that apostolic relationship and the early church recognized it as well. Okay? I'll try to get more on that for you next. That's a good question. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have just to, just for some of us learn for the first time, for some of us just remind ourselves of these principles. And Lord, we want to accurately divide the word of truth. And so help us to be faithful in that. Help us to avoid some of the pitfalls we've talked about, like uh, allegorizing or spiritualizing a text or um, understanding how... um, the, the word is applied or what it means. And so help us to be mindful of these things in the context that we might be better Bereans, that we might be better students of your word and that it will bring your name glory. We thank you for this time together we've had today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.